Good morning, campers. Good morning, campers. Today's activities will include daredevil defying stunts. Lunch today will be the largest cinema... Ugh. Lunch today will be the largest pie fight in cinematic history. And to end the night, we will be swearing to get back at that damn Leslie. <laughs> so put on your sunscreen, bug spray, and camp uniform as we dive into the great race. Ooh, nice R roll there. The great race. Marishka Hargate, Sarah. Marishka Hargate, Sam. I am your camp counselor, Sam, an ex-pro wrestler in training and current drag wrestler manager. And I'm camp counselor, Sarah, an emancipated woman. And we're here to ask, <laughs> is it camp? We're diving into popular culture of all kinds to loosely identify what makes something camp. We are not here to be the definitive experts on it, but rather just talk about this often overlooked and frankly queer subgenre. So... The Great Race. It's another in our ongoing Blake Edwards canon. Yes, I, I think eventually we're just going to have gone through <laughs> pretty much all of Blake Edwards by some point, right? Mm -hmm. So, Except for maybe the party. Well, yeah. may, we might do the party. It's it's really touch and go. I know it's, I know it's like a, a comedy classic and... Aside from the one glaring, horrible joke, it's apparently quite funny. Um, so I mentioned last episode that I knew this um, movie. Actually, before I had seen... Well, no, I watched Victor Victoria growing up. So those were the two big Blake Edwards movies that I knew. I did not watch the Pink Panther movies until, of course, we watched them together. Um, but this was the Blake Edwards comedy that I knew growing up since before I could remember. Hmm. And I had never heard of it until <laughs> you brought it up and stuck it on here. I mean, I, I probably had heard of it, but I'd never seen it. I'd never seen trailers for it. I'd never had any context for it. Yes, as I mentioned, my grandma loves this movie. So she was definitely the person who introduced it to me and I have loved it ever since. Now on this most recent watch, I've got to say, I did come to the conclusion that we watched two really great movies. <laughs> Unfortunately, they have been edited, edited together to form one movie. This bitch is long. It's a really long, two and a half hours. And it was the most expensive comedy ever made to that point, and you can see why. Not just the fact that this is two and a half hours long, but my god, they want to show you everything they spent money on. I mean, half the sets are essentially destroyable as well. <laughs> Yeah, this movie doesn't really have a legacy, despite the three stars being big names that, like, anyone would recognize. Yeah, I mean, those three stars being uh, Jack Lemmon, if I remember correctly, mm -hmm. uh, Tony Curtis, father of one Jamie Lee Curtis, and 
uh, Natalie Wood, right? Yeah, the true lasting That's legacy all. that Tony Curtis has in both yours and my hearts is being the dad of one of the greatest actors to ever live. I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis. We'll we'll get to her when we get to her. We, <laughs> I, it will got, just be we, 90 minutes of fawning. <laughs> just I don't care. It's Jamie Lee Curtis. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah. These, these were three fairly big stars for their time. And to get them all in one comedy movie, A, that must have been expensive. And then on top of it, this movie making it expensive oh yeah so the premise of the great race if you guys haven't watched it and i get the idea that most people have not watched it um is it is about a car race from new york to paris it's based on a real event that's the thing that you said before and i went (laughs) i'm sorry what like okay out of the context of the film i go okay like a couple of people raced it's around the world in 80 days it's hidalgo all right there we have this cultural touchstone of a great race right that mm-hmm. must undergo days or weeks or months yada 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 but that's usually uh you know a fiction right Mm -hmm. around the world in 80 days didn't actually happen but you tell me this did okay when i say this is based on a real event i mean that this race happened none of the people in this bear any resemblance to the actual (laughs) people in the race That that part I was pretty sure, right? <laughs> I, I'm fairly certain we we do not have this snidely whiplash, dick dastardly douchebag running around the world. I mean, the movie opens; it's dedicated to Laurel and Hardy, so that gives you kind of an idea of the the pace of this thing. But let's talk a little bit about the real one. Um, I want to give a shout out first to the podcast The Dollop, uh, which was where I first learned that this was, in fact, a real event. Uh, one of my favorite podcasts and where I pulled basically all of my information for this episode. So Lay it on what me. you need to know first is that this was not the first big race. In 1907, there was a Peking to Paris race. Uh, What you have to realize at the time is that the roads that ran between Peking, nowadays Beijing, and Paris, such as they were, uh, were not paved. I can see that. Yeah, that that makes absolute sense within historical context to me, considering, you know, I'm pretty sure they're... There's still large swaths between that area that aren't paved. Yeah. Like, there's a reason the Trans-Siberian Railroad is a big deal. Because there's a fuck ton of land and you got to get over it somehow. The prize for driving from Peking to Paris was a magnum of champagne. What? Yeah. I, I hope you like champagne. And a lot of it, but not enough to make it worth driving from Beijing Just to Paris. One magnum of champagne? I mean, a magnum's pretty big. I think a magnum's like three liters, but yeah. But 
one Meg <laughs> yeah, wasn't yeah, one. even like a particularly amazing one. Like, oh, this is from the fa- Fountain of Youth itself, and we'll <laughs> give you back all that time you wasted driving here. Well, I would hope it was Parisian champagne rather than Beijing champagne. But yeah, that's about it. This is, you know, this is the age of the great Leslie. It's all people jetting about wearing scarves. It's not now, worth it. <laughs> cars back then, such as they were, they're basically indistinguishable from... Uh, that's not the word. That's the opposite of what I want. They are not recognizable <laughs> as cars today. <laughs> uh, on top of it, they weren't called cars. They were automobiles. Automobiles. Horseless carriages, if you will. Um, the equivalent cost to buy a car back then is at least six figures nowadays. So, take what, so imagine a six-figure car nowadays. That's like a supercar, a hypercar, you know? That's yeah. that's not even like a Tesla. That's like a fancy Tesla. Now, imagine <laughs> driving that from Beijing to Paris nowadays on today's roads. Now, we're imagine doing it. equipped for those roads. <laughs> now, imagine doing it with the amenities of 1907. Uh, I'm exhausted <laughs> listening to this already. So after the Peking to Paris race, the New York to Paris race was proposed. It was not, in fact, proposed by the great Leslie. Um, it was co-sponsored by car companies because the idea was, again, this is going to be a great ad for your car, right? Uh, I mean, it was, one would hope so. <laughs> it was co-sponsored by Le Matin, which is a Parisian newspaper, and the New York Times. What do you think the winner of this race got? A magnum and a half. They got a 1,400-pound trophy. Wait, when you say pound, do you mean, I mean by weight, weight? Or do you mean... Who? Who's... <laughs> Who's making a 1,400-pound trophy? (laughs) Now, at this time, uh, no car had ever driven through Siberia. I just want you to keep that in mind. Okay. Now, how many miles does your car have on it right now? Uh, just in case my insurance company is listening, uh, twelve. <laughs> I I I rarely use it, but but I use it effectively. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm not shy. My car has about hundred and twenty k on it. Uh, the average lifespan of a car back then, in terms of mileage, was ten thousand miles or sixteen thousand kilometers. What? You're wrinkling my brain. Uh, And we're going to continue with a few little guessing games here. How many people do you think at this point, so this is 1908, have driven across the... Hold on a a second. Yeah. Are you able to call in Robin to do this guessing (laughs) game? Robin's got to get paid. How many people do you think have driven across the continental U.S. at that point? The Twizzlers are tightening Uh, around your legs. Oh, oh, Robin, no. Um, uh, 14. 
Lower. Five. Higher. <laughs> Seven. It was nine. Nine people had driven across the continental U.S. Now for a follow-up. How many had done it in winter? None. That's correct. <laughs> the Twizzlers yeah. are on your leg, unbind. And Hooray. Robin somehow tricycles backwards through the French doors. Goodbye. Oh, go Goodbye, Robin. It was good to see you again. Finally, now I get to speak. Now, there's a little hitch in this plan, which you might have noticed if you've ever looked at a map. <laughs> um, is it the fact that the United States and the other half of the world aren't connected by a physical land bridge? You got it! So the plan was they were going to wait until the Bering Strait froze and drive across the Bering Strait. Oh, no, that's also a bad idea. <laughs> the Bering Strait is famous for being filled with seawater, by the way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so even though nobody had ever driven across the United States in winter, they had to do this in winter because they had to reach the Bering Strait in winter. I'm just, mm, uh, all of this is just bad plans. <laughs> now, I'm going to give you a few little um, tidbits about the teams that entered. We have uh, teams from the U.S., France, Germany, and Italy. We're not going to spend too much time on them, but there are some characters, as my grandmother would also say. So to give you an idea, in the Italian car, we have a young poet riding shotgun. What? Why? So his, his dad owned a newspaper, and the poet wanted to be in this race so bad. He said, Dad, if you don't let me get in the car, I'm going to sail by myself across the Atlantic. So his dad was like, Fuck it. I guess this is technically less dangerous. My son's going to be in the car with you. Uh, okay. All right. <laughs> Italian poet with a death wish. Go. Next. One of the French cars was led by a man who once organized a speedboat race from Marseille to Algiers. Guess who won? Did, did he win? Because no. he's still alive? Nobody won because every boat sank in the Mediterranean. <laughs> they didn't even make it out of the first stage? I mean, the Mediterranean does go all the way to Algiers. Okay, alright, yeah, sure, sure. Okay, no one won that race, but here he is surviving and doing another race. Another French team had a car with no body. Sorry, say that again. No body. It didn't have a body, the car. It was sheet metal over the engine. Why? <laughs> I, I don't know much I don't know much about cars, but there's a few things I do know. <laughs> Important. Seats. <laughs> Four tires. Engine. Steering wheel. 
brakes, lights, body oh. to contain all of those things. Honey, we don't have roads. You think we're getting so fancy to have bodies? I believe they also call it a chassis. Ooh, aren't you a greasy-handed little boy? <laughs> now there was this this is something true from the movie there was a reporter embedded with the american team however it was wasn't a, man. a man though it was yeah. a man and he was also reportedly very fat oh that's okay yeah i mean fat for back then would have been like oh he's 200 pounds enormous so because they set off from new york uh they went they uh left from broadway a quarter million people lined up to watch them leave like literally it was all the way from what we consider like broadway broadway great white way up to harlem people were lined up to see these cars huh. now the starting pistol was supposed to be fired by a civil war general but he was late. So eventually the guy who was like essentially the head of the triple A uh, got impatient and just pulled the trigger himself. Oh my God. This also, is an omen. Civil War general. It feels like there's, there's, there's a pretty good chance that that civil war general may not be a great guy. No. Now there was no strict route mapped out. If you're picturing like the Indiana Jones thing of like the plane flying over the globe. Basically, they could all sort of choose their own route, and they would sort of ping-pong from town to town. Now, because there aren't, you know, things like highways yet, what would happen is they would get to the town, the local, the local auto club there would guide them as far as they could in the right direction, and then they'd be on their own to find the next town and the next auto club. Okay, it... It makes set that part I get right. It's it's um, the spirit of adventure rather than having a specific mapped out route. That way, people can kind of divide up and I I think this will be faster. No, this will be faster, and who knows? Maybe they'll just die along the way or find Canada. Who knows? It does. I also want you to remember, however, that of the four teams. Three were German, French, and Italian. So how good their English was, I'm not certain. Uh, there was ah, at least one case of people getting mad and deliberately sending them in the wrong direction just because they didn't like them. <laughs> but, I mean, on top of it, I'm sure the Italians had a very good car because they're known for making very good cars. I think it was probably a very beautiful car. Whether it was a good car might be up for debate. <laughs> So they start by going into upstate New York, and the snow is horrible. Keep in mind, the roads aren't being cleared for them. So at times they would have to, you know how um, people will move things in olden times by rolling logs, like the Easter Island heads and things like that? Yeah. So they had to go out front, find the ground, put a plank down on the ground, the car would drive forward onto that plank, they'd pick up the plank at the back of the car, bring it forward, put down the plank, the car would drive onto that. 
okay. I, yeah, it's um, labor intensive is a yeah. nice way to say this. Uh, one car's engine died 96 miles into the race. I believe they were still in Pennsylvania. Okay, and they're still not out of the United States. No. Uh, now, <laughs> there were very few gas stations in the U.S. Naturally. There were zero in Alaska or Siberia. Okay, so how did they solve that problem? So Standard Oil was trying to find a solution to um, creating like a gas that wouldn't freeze. So they basically did drop points along the route where they're like, you can go here and get gas, just like in the movie. Ah, okay. All right. All right. So that's, that's pretty smart. That wasn't like, we'll just leave. Shit. <laughs> now, 41 days into the race, the first person arrives in San Francisco. This was the Americans. They were the first ones to San Francisco. And you're probably going, why are they in San Francisco? Because Sarah, they then, why are they in San Francisco? Because they then shipped their cars to Alaska. No, that's, that's, that's cheating. I know it is. But no, this was the, this was part of the route. They were like, British Columbia, disgusting. Yukon, I wouldn't. I'm just going to skip that part. And they all shipped their cars from San Francisco to Alaska. No, this is this is bullshit. Yes. Now, when the crew was in Alaska, all of the teams were like, this is impossible. We we literally cannot do this. The idea of crossing the Bering Strait when it was frozen didn't even come up because they had to get to the Bering Strait too and it was so difficult that they couldn't. So everybody at that point was like, well, screw it. I guess we're going to go across to Japan. So everybody then went from Alaska to Japan again by ship. From Japan, they then went by ship again to Vladivostok and carried on like nothing had ever happened. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure they, like, I was pretty sure that they didn't do it the way they did in the film because the way they did in the film is not real where they were on one king-size bed of ice yeah yeah not real so now they're in siberia and it's spring you know what happens in siberia and mongolia in spring it gets really really muddy Picture right. the wheels on the cars in the movie. Do they look like off-road, all-terrain cars to you? No, of course not. And those are the same kind of wheels they actually had. Yes. Now, it was so muddy and fly-ridden in Siberia that it was basically like the Western Front at that point because instead of measuring in miles per, per day, they were now measuring in feet advanced per day. Uh, oh, 
Oh, God. If I ever get sent back in time, this is definitely a no-go zone. We are not going to this time period to do this thing. <laughs> Keep in mind, they're all insane. They probably... Oh, no, they don't even have leaded gas yet. So... <laughs> Never mind. I'm sure they had... I'm sure they had lead poisoning or whatever from all the cocaine and heroin that is readily available across the counter in various tinctures and potions. Exactly. How else are you going to drive 24 hours a day? <laughs> 24 hours? We left those ages ago. Now, eventually, eventually, they get out of Siberia and the roads slowly, slowly, slowly improve as they get closer and closer to Europe. So they're in Europe... They make it all the way there. The first to Paris is the German team. They don't okay. win. Wait, what? The German team doesn't win, despite being the first to Paris. Did, did they not cross the finish line? Did they break down in front of it? Did, did they cheat and go the other way? <laughs> close so you know how i said everybody went from alaska to japan to vladivostok i kind of lied the germans were like going to japan seems highly inefficient what if we just went straight to vladivostok and what if instead of going feet per day what if we loaded part of our car onto a train and just road part of the way but uh, no i feel like i feel like it's it's being judged by a kangaroo court who are going like <laughs> trains disqualified but boats are fine <laughs> now in uh because of this because they the judge decided that they had cheated. They were penalized 30 days, which meant that even though they arrived before the Americans, the Americans won. Okay. When did the he Americans won... arrive? Uh, so this was both in, uh, they were both in July of 1908. Now he won technically by 26 days, which is still the largest winning margin in any motorsport event ever. <laughs> really? The Italians arrived in September. Oh my god. Can you imagine running a race and getting to the end and finding out, oh yeah, no, no, um, the guy who won was here two months before you. So that's the great race. It's insane that they even had to improve on this to make a comedy film out of it. There was planning to be a 100th anniversary one in 2008 but um, it was cancelled because there was no approval or permits to travel through China. Yeah, that'll do it. So they did another one in 2011 and they actually all did it. Oh, congrats to them. How long did it take them that time? Um, I actually don't know that off the top of my head, but I do know that one of the participants in the 2011 race was the great-grandson of the American who won the 1908 race. Oh, okay. All right. You know, nice little legacy there. Yeah. So that's the 1908 New York to Paris car race. 
an event stranger than the movie that was based on it. So, Sarah, would you say that the 1908 Great Race from New York to Paris is camp? I think from our very comfortable perspective of not having to take part in it, I would agree. How about you? Yes, I I think the concept alone, I'm sure living through it was an absolute fucking nightmare. But, you know, 114 years removed, we're going, oh, yeah. Absolute silliness. It's hilarious. Oh, that's great. I love that. Ooh-wee. Well, now that we're done with one great race, shall we get into another great race? Let's go for it. Let's go for it. Okay. So, the film starts with an overture title. Why don't we have these anymore? I think it's because uh, we don't have intermissions. Probably because intermissions cost movie theaters money. That's true, I guess. But I would also think that with intermissions, people might just up and leave. And then the movie theater is just getting, like, money for free at that point, right? Whatever. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Anyway, it's all jazzy. It's got some late motifs, a love song, a marching song, America. And it's three minutes in. (laughs) and it finally gets to the actual title cards. The film is dedicated to Laurel and Hardy, as you said before, and a lovely uh, placard saying, ladies, kindly remove your hats. So Sarah, I hope you removed your hat. I was wearing an enormous hat, and um, actually there is someone behind me when I watch TV. I have a David Tennant poster behind me when I watch TV. So uh, he's just going to have to suck eggs in hell, I guess. Is it a David Tennant poster or is it a Doctor Who poster? Be honest. It's a David Tennant as Hamlet poster. Oh, okay. All right. We'll excuse that then. <laughs> now, I do have a Peter Capaldi Doctor Who poster <laughs> above my TV. I, I knew it. I know Let's you. Let's not go thinking that I'm normal in any way just yet. Oh, I'm I'm sitting in bed below a great big painting of Batman and Superman making out. So Good for you. <laughs> on brand for both of us. Anyway, we get to see the players as cards on screen, so there's a lot of fun happening. It's I I like I like these title cards a lot, right? The the art style, mm-hmm. the, the 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 throwback to I mean, what was then at the time, this would have been 50 years later-ish. So that would be the equivalent of us today making a movie in the 1970s. Time. Anyway. We begin with a hot air balloon and a crowd. A man introduces to the crowd the great Leslie. And there's Tony Curtis. He's dashing. He's dapper. He's dressed entirely in white. And he smiles, and there is a literal twinkle in his smile. Bing! (laughs) It goes ting! It really does go ting. Uh, Yeah, it's it's a great way to introduce the character. You immediately know who this man is. Mm Mm-hmm. The problem is, the rest of the movie does nothing else to elaborate on that point. Yeah, I don't think this movie is terribly interested in um, 
making any of our three leads actual, you know, fleshed out characters. (laughs) They are, they are vehicles for jokes and don't you ever forget it. Yeah. They're even saying caricatures is very loose because like, you know who they are. It's a white hat. It's a black hat and it's an emancipated lady. Oh yeah. I was like, is, is this, we'll get to it later, but I was like, is this character offensive? I don't know if I'm supposed to be offended by this Natalie Wood character. I don't know either. Maybe we'll, we'll talk about that as we go through with Mm -hmm. her stuff. So women keep kissing him despite being hoisted into the air in a straight jacket, dangling from the bottom of the hot air balloon. Willingly, I should say. Willingly. Willingly. willingly He's willingly. a daredevil. He's a daredevil. <laughs> and I I assume at this point, like, after watching the movie, this is his job. He just dares to devil and doing all kinds of <laughs> amazing stunts and spectacular things. And, I yeah. mean, this really was the era for it, for being a hero, for just, like, strapping yourself to a thing and... Doing something fast or something tall or something far. Yeah, this is the era far. of Houdini, right? Yeah, it very much is the uh, the era of Houdini and and all kinds of stuff like that. If they had if they had planes, he would also be walking the wings of a biplane, kind of thing. A uh, barnstormers—that's mm-hmm. the word for it. Yeah. As the balloon takes off, a shrub makes its way over to reveal a dick dastardly type villain. He fires a giant red arrow at the balloon, which causes women to faint on the ground. Oh, no. And this is where I notice, oh, Peter Falk is the henchman. And I love it. It's Peter Falk, everyone. We love him. It's weird seeing him so young, right? He doesn't look like he's grown into his face yet. Yeah, this must be late 20s, maybe. Yeah. But he definitely has the like slightly hunched over <laughs> kind of talk that Peter Falk does and did, and we loved him for it. Mm-hmm. Columbo, ladies and gentlemen, and those beyond, between, and before. So, Leslie, who's up in the air, his balloon's been hit, get, manages to get out of the straitjacket, climbs up the rope into the basket, and then jumps it back out of the basket and you go oh no what the fuck and people are on the ground are oh no and then he pulls the cord and releases a parachute he's fine it's also important to note that everything that leslie wears is white his parachute is white his hot air balloon is white this is a running thing. Not a speck on the man. <laughs> In the entire movie, he only gets dirty once. But man, is it a great payoff. Yes, yes. We find out that the dick dastardly type is a man called Professor Fate, who's kind of a <laughs> rival stuntman slash daredevil, but evil. And you can tell he's evil because of several things. One, he wears all black. So in the way that Leslie wears all white and everything's white, Dr. Fate's like, I'm going to do the opposite, black. But Dr. Fate is also a showman. So he's like, I'm going to stick a bunch of skulls on it too. <laughs> not not in a spooky way. More in like a, 
I like a theme. And the theme is black with a skull. Yeah. And three, he's got an evil mustache. Yeah, I will say every day uh, that Jack Lemon was a very handsome man, but he is full into, I am evil and look how oily my hair is and let me twirl my mustache in this. I'm going to do a lot of eyebrow acting. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we we get this very simple thing. These first few scenes are just set up for the idea that Leslie does something. He's great at it. Professor Eight tries. Uh, Professor Fate tries to stop him. He's not great at it. When he goes to do the same or similar kind of stunt, it backfires, and he ends up in a barn, the same barn over and over. This is why I say that there are two movies inside this movie. Um, and to that point, I think there's also the first maybe 15, 20 minutes of this movie is just a series of short movies <laughs> that feels like Blake Edwards was like, I have an idea for a joke. Yeah, yeah, it was, I mean, you got to think when, when was Wacky Races and the, the Dudley Do-Right show mm-hmm. and all, all of these various like mustache twirling cartoon villains they must have been coming out around the same time this this isn't just like right. this is not the genesis no oh wait no that's him by that's <laughs> <laughs> that's him by himself this is not the phil collins <laughs> solo era yeah. uh anyway Love you, babe. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you understood what drums You're I was welcome. doing. Uh, anyway, so we get these vignettes. You know, Doc. I want to say Doctor Fate because that's a DC superhero. This is Professor Fate. Totally different guy. Uh, Doctor Fate will be played by Pierce Brosnan in the upcoming Black Adam movie. Oh, he's that yeah, guy. Yeah, he's that guy. Golden Helmet. He's kind of like Doctor Strange, but a lot more Egyptian stuff. Anyway. And he's played by an Irish man, you I, said? I, the, the comics have done a lot recently to try and be like, we're going to make the character actually Egyptian, people. He's not just a white guy anymore. Mm. So. Gotcha. Uh, Professor Fate then tries to do a mile in 12 seconds on a rocket car. Everyone thinks it's a joke. It works, sort of, but it takes off. He accidentally invents flight. Yada, yada, yada. Ha, 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 ha. Funny, funny, funny. So, now we cut to Leslie in a boardroom meeting where he proposes to race an American-made automobile from New York City to Paris. And everyone's harum 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 harum, right? It's it's weird that he's presenting the idea of a race to a board of directors for a car company and not proposing it to like an international group of something. He's just saying, "You guys build me a car and I'll race it." And <laughs> it's it's very presumptive. Thankfully, one of the board member gets up. And in a delightfully over-the-top Scottish accent, objects. Now, the <laughs> the subtitle says this is a Scottish accent. 
I thought it was French at the start. No, it. This is this is very this from from my specific knowledge of being English. <laughs> it is a Scottish accent. It's just it's more so the caricature of a Scottish accent, mm-hmm. right? And it's more of that highbrow Scottish accent where it's like. Ken, what's going on here? Don't you know? Right? <laughs> that, that, that whole deal going on. Anyway, Leslie figures out, hey, it's that fate fuck, and tries to pull his beard off, at which point he goes, ow, ow, me beard. How dare you try to pull me beard off? And then he pulls his own beard off, revealing, yes, it is Professor Fate. God damn it. He's an idiot. And uh, in order to escape being caught, he dives out of the window onto a flagpole and then onto a car. Poorly. These guys are daredevils. Apparently, the best way to exit rooms is by diving out of them. (laughs) So we get another couple scenes of, like, Leslie seeing the car for the first time guess what color the car is it's white white. (laughs) with gold trim but it's white it's hella white and they call it the leslie special a name that is never brought up again for the rest of the film yeah uh meanwhile professor fate is flying overhead in a bicycle balloon pseudo steampunk contraption yeah, we've all seen the Great Mouse Detective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and and Max is with him, and he does a lot of yelling at Max. Max is a Max is Peter Falk. He is a hapless hench person who, for some reason, Max! has tied his 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 whatever <laughs> to Professor Fate's whatever else this analogy ends up being. I mean, we if we want to talk about characters' sexualities and whatever Professor Fate and Max have going on, because at no point ever in this movie are any of them interested in Maggie. Oh, absolutely not. It's it's uh, <laughs> it's not even a thought that crosses his mind. He's evil, but he's not a pervert kind of evil. <laughs> more more <laughs> of just vaguely evil. He's evil for the lulls. Yeah, he's a troll. Yeah, yeah. I figured it out. Thank you. Uh, So, (laughs) Fate tries to drop a bomb from his bicycle balloon thing onto the Leslie special. Of course, it gets caught in the spokes of the bike, and it blows up, and they plummet to their deaths, except this is a comedy family movie, so nobody actually dies. We cut to uh, Fate's house, which is a gorgeous sort of mansion that apparently lives on the same block as the Adams family's spooky old house. Yeah. It's painted black and everything. And we find out that Fate has built an evil car called the Hannibal 8, which is decked out with all (laughs) kinds of silly contraptions. And this is where my mind finally went, oh... Is this why the Grinch's dog is named Max? Oh, it might be. Yeah, because it's got that very similar kind of like, 
you know, hapless hench person working for somebody that they they love, whatever that love may be. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other one's just an evil douche. <laughs> uh, now, did you see my very favorite sight gag of this movie in Professor Fate's house? Uh, well, I was paying attention to the car because the car is filled with contraptions. But go on. Tell us what your sight gag is. List two. Um, we see Professor Fate first in his house playing an enormous organ, very spookily. It's some sort of um, Beethoven piece. I forget what it is. It's the same one that's in Fantasia. And he's finally called away by Max for dinner. Uh, and then the music continues as we reveal that this is, in fact, a player piano. <laughs> yes, I did notice that. That was great. The, the second thing is that there is a large moose head on the wall. Okay. Uh, as they go to investigate Maggie at the door, you see the other side of the wall and see that the rest of the moose has been stuffed <laughs> and is on the other side of the wall. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I, I did not notice that, but uh, I love that. I love that joke. It's mm-hmm. always good. That joke comes up again in Paddington, and I very much enjoyed it there. Anyway. We cut to some business, which is later revealed to be a newspaper where a clerk has run in quickly, Mr. one Mr. Frisbee, to tell the newspaper editor that a lady has handcuffed herself to a washroom door. A lady! The men's washroom? I know. They won't be able to conduct men's business. With a lady being t- chained to the washroom. The editor goes downstairs with Mr. Frisbee to this room, and there is one Maggie Dubois. She has handcuffed herself to the men's washroom door, and it's causing a huge hubbub. She would like to be a newspaper reporter. And she is also a suffragette, an emancipated woman. She's a real fucking spitfire, this one. Mm-hmm. She's, uh, she's very, what's the word I'm looking for? She's very sort of straightforward. She's played by Natalie Wood, and she's in these Edith Head costumes, which are incredible. And... You know, when she sits on the editor's desk to try to convince him, she pulls up her leg to show him her stocking. And he's, of course, rendered speechless. And she says, you see, how silly is it that, you know, two adults can't talk to each other about something as simple as a stocking? It's ridiculous. This is sort of her approach to everything. Yeah, she's she's very much like, I'm going to find the thing that embarrasses you or shames you, and I'm going to barge straight into it so that I can leverage it to my advantage. And that's exact... Not in a mean way. No, 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 but more in a... I am an emancipated woman. I am an educated woman. And aren't you an educated man? Aren't you someone who should be able to talk about stockings? Why, here's a stocking. And here I am lying in bed, kicking my leg up and down, because that's the kind of bitch I am. (laughs) (laughs) But I tell you, Natalie Wood in this movie, whoo! She is... 
I'm not too keen on her hair. That's my only issue. Oh no, you need the hair. The hair is the hair is part okay, of it. Okay, all right, all right. But then again, I'm not looking at her like you're looking at her. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking respectfully. <laughs> respectfully, respectfully. Uh, she's uh, she is gorgeous, and she's a firecracker. Mm-hmm. She's kind of like if if Lois Lane hadn't existed by this point, in 1965, mm. she would have been like the prototype Lois Lane, right? Goes in there, doesn't take mm-hmm. guff. She's got a story to tell, and she basically strong arms her way, and she does this a lot. She strong arms her way into becoming the reporter for the race now the rules stipulate that there cannot be reporters following them during the race so instead she says you're gonna buy me a car and i'm gonna race the car because i'll be an entrant uh, uh in the race and that way i can keep you informed as to what's happening in the race and at the same time we might win who knows it's you know modern times emancipated woman she likes to say that a lot (laughs) so she gives him her prices he signs and she leaves with a cigar and a job professor fate is in a submarine now spying on leslie and this is also where i was like oh their prototype team rocket because there's they're in this in the submarine and they've got big red f's on their black outfits that are the exact they're kind of they're more like the the game boy (laughs) version of team rocket rather than the cartoon version the cartoon version they're all in white Mm -hmm. but in the game boy games they're all in black yeah it's prototype team rocket (laughs) Where does he get? Yeah, they're spying on Leslie. Maggie approaches Leslie. Yeah. She, they, they uh, talk briefly and they go off to enjoy some champagne. This movie moves a mile a minute to get jokes and physical comedy in, because the amount of jokes that I am skimming by in order to get to these plot points is incredible. Like we we miss a whole thing of. Professor Fate's thumbs get trapped in the periscope and he goes up and he goes down and he goes up again and he gets lost. Oh no. And Max rescues him. And later on we get to see him with his thumbs all bandaged up. It's, it's quite charming. <laughs> so. Le- and it's Jack Lemon. I mean, he's, this is what he does. <laughs> yeah. So Leslie and Maggie are together inside of his, uh, oh gosh, what are they called? It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's functionally a tent, but it's this massive, massive thing. It's like you'd see in... There's um, a word for it, and I can't remember what that word is, but it's like a... Yeah. Uh, for some reason, my brain is pulling out the word Bedouin, but that's not right. That's a people. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and it's not a gazebo either, right? It's, it's ostentatious. He tries to seduce her with champagne and, again, a literal twinkle in his eye. Yeah, this one's a little spooky if you don't know it's coming. She comes out as a reporter to him and says, basically, I have zero sexual interest in you. I'm just here to report on the race. And it becomes... And he says, you can't. You're our girl. Yeah, it becomes this verbal sparring match of... 
she says, oh, I know three languages. I, I know uh, English, French, Arabic, and Russian I, that I can speak, read, and write fluently. And he goes, oh, yeah, I know those ones and five others. And she goes, ah, well, I am a trained fencer and I've won the women's U.S. title in fencing. And he's like, oh, well, that's nice. It's not the men's title, though, which I've won. And it's this anything you can do, I can do better. Yeah, mm. except it's always ending with Leslie on top. Yay, feminism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it silly that she thinks she can do what the boys do? <laughs> and I think to myself, <laughs> these two are never going to fall in love. Whoa. <laughs> so, in order to kind of force her point she handcuffs herself to him and unfortunately he then forces himself on her by kissing her yeah hero of our movie guys 1965 welcome yeah i i don't like this aspect of leslie like i i understand he's supposed no. to be charming and handsome and he's the 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 man that men want to be and women want kind of thing but this and he does this fairly frequently throughout the film where he just kisses women and i'm not saying that <laughs> to be fair except except for this it's mostly women just coming up and kissing yeah, him but and i'm not saying this is a homosexual looking at a heterosexual and saying ew he's kissing women i'm saying this as a like <laughs> yeah a little consent guys come on come on yeah would it yeah. kill you anyway thank goodness she fights back until she doesn't uh, but he has used this kiss as a clever diversion to remove the handcuff from himself and handcuff her to herself. Again, the race has not started yet. We are about 20 or 30 minutes into this yeah. movie. So she goes to visit Professor Fate, who is sitting down to dinner. A lot of physical comedy with this dinner of him not being able to eat because his thumbs are all sore. me, 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 me. And she is chased into the house by his dogs and hilarity ensues as they all try to escape the hounds. The car goes off, a bunch of smoke. Oh no, the, the intruder alarms go off. A bunch of gates fall down. They're all trying. It's a lot of the running around, things are happening. Oh, because things are happening, more things start happening kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's quite funny. It's quite... But basically, she makes the same offer to Fate, and he turns yeah. her down. Because he just wants to fuck over Leslie. He just wants to fuck Leslie. Yeah, I can, I can see it. I can see it. So. It's the day of the race, and the racers are surrounded by throngs of people. The racers and their teams are doing final inspections when who should arrive but Maggie in her own car, and she's somehow stronged her way into the race at the end. Great. Love it. Awesome. The crowd parts, and they're off! Well, 
these three are off. It turns out there are other racers from a bunch <laughs> yeah. of other places, but none of them really make it out of New York because A, no one cares, and B, <laughs> we have to make this movie just about these three. So Max has sabotaged all of the engines of the other car. Yes. Uh, <laughs> every time somebody says sabotage, I think of, uh, I think it's a line from a Star Trek or, or something where somebody's like, ah, oh, yes, it came from the Sabo, which is the Japanese shoe that they would use to put into machinery in order to sabotage. I don't think Yeah, that's I know. True. That's why I think it's a funny fucking line. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it comes from the French saboteur. Uh, maybe the word saboteur also comes from the Japanese shoe, the sabo. Maybe this is one of those my big yeah, fat Greek sure. writing. Ah, kimono uh, is derived from the Greek root. <laughs> 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 anyway, uh, Max has tried to sabotage all the cars, but of course. He slipped up because he's a goofy goofums and has accidentally sabotaged Professor Fate's car, causing its engine to just drop out. So Maggie, who is industrious as anything and apparently owns nothing but suitcases of holding. She stops <laughs> to take a picture and sends it via carrier pigeon back to the newspaper. She somehow has an infinite of supply of both carrier pigeons, carrier pigeon feed, and various outfits. Oh, yes. The carrier pigeons, I have to assume, got eaten somewhere during the Bering Strait. <laughs> oh, no. Poor pigeons. Oh, I mean, a movie this old, I look at any of the animals and say, oh, you're all dead now. I don't know Jesus. why my brain does that. Just old movies. I look at it and go, oh, all dead. <laughs> oh, yeah. None of the pigeons have survived. Or they're very old pigeons by now. <laughs> we cut to her car having broken down in the desert and fate overtaking her. What desert this is, one can only guess. Maybe it's Montana. It's the desert outside Baracho. <laughs> Wherever Baracho is. Montana. I believe I believe I read somewhere that Baracho is Spanish for drunkard. Yes. It's Spanish oh, for drunkard. Okay. Alright, that, that makes a little more sense in the context of it. But uh doesn't tell me where it is. <laughs> but then again, this film isn't really concerned with where things are. Just more so that things happen. So, fate overtakes her after she's broken down, and Leslie stops in order to help. So, as he's trying to help her, she just takes all of her shit off of her car and sticks it onto his car and says, Cool, you're going to take me. And he goes, No, 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 I don't think so. And she's, uh, Well, you're going to take me as far as Baracho, and then I'll leave you. I promise. Mm -hmm. the biggest pack of lies I've ever heard out of a person's mouth <laughs> uh, so now we're in yeah. Baracho unfortunately on the way in Professor Fate and Max are beset by uh, 
a group of First Nations people in the most stereotypical... They're on horses. They're making the hooting and hollering thing. It's 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 real racist, and then it gets even more so racist when you find out that these First yes. Nations people aren't First Nations people. They're the sheriff and a bunch of guys dressed up in order to form a welcoming co- uh, committee. D- dressed, uh, just uh, 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 I hate this so much. I mean, mm. I'm sure with some clever editing, we could just excise this whole part. Oh yeah, it would. Oh yeah, it would. It's not necessary in the movie. I mean, if we want to talk about things not necessary in this movie, this two-hour and forty-minute comedy, <laughs> we could get it down to a tight two hours. I'm sure. Yeah. So. Speaking of which, we are ourselves quite a ways into our runtime, so I think we might I, have to I speed am up speeding a up. Bit. Trust me. So. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah fate wants to get gassed up and go but the town wants to celebrate so he fucks off he's like no i don't want to celebrate with you guys goodbye yeah he's like the town uh, so i can yeah. relate i just want to be alone i don't want to do your stupid part leslie shows up and is explained hey there won't be gas until tomorrow you kind of have to stay overnight and he goes all right fine let's have a big party and they graciously accept the offer to stay and celebrate they decide to celebrate in a saloon with dancing girls and gun shooting and lily olay who breaks into a song lily olay is the the thing that i remembered clearest out of this movie yeah. when i was a she kid. sings a lovely song that is both charming and a little offensive i didn't write down any of the offensive stuff because i wanted to get out of that song it's all about, it's all about he shouldn't have swang on me because she's a modern western woman and she can punch back just as good and as she, she does gets. later on in a bit Fate is there in disguise with the intentions of stealing the gasoline for himself. <laughs> right? At any opportunity, should he ever get ahead of Leslie, rather than continuing to stay ahead, he does the dick dastardly move of, I'm going to hang back, try and set some kind of trap to slow Leslie down. It's like, no, dude, you've got a lead. Just go. I was just thinking, this is three for three Blake Edwards movies that just have musical numbers in the middle of it. I wonder if he ever stops that. I wonder if he ever made a, just a musical. We should look that up. I mean, you could argue that Victor Victoria is kind of a musical. It's a musical in the same way that Cabaret is, where you don't see anything that's um, inside the yeah, character's heads. Yeah. It's just... They perform a lot of yeah. songs. Uh, well, we'll see. We'll see. We'll look into it the rest of his oeuvre. Yeah. Well, at this big celebration, Lily makes an awful lot of advances on Leslie, and Maggie is very visibly upset. One, because it's clear she kind of has a thing for Leslie, but two, Lily is making it real hard for Maggie just to exist in her general vicinity. This stuff is so funny. I Every time I forget that Natalie Wood is genuinely very funny in this movie. So, Fate finds out that Lily has a man, Texas Jack, who gets wildly jealous. So he goes out to try and find him. Oh, no, wait, Texas Jack is here. 
and he begins throwing Lily around and bashing into everyone. Leslie tries. Yeah, this is no. Not fun it's to super watch. not fun to watch, but it leads to an awfully fun part, which is. Leslie decides to stand up to Texas Jack. Texas Jack gives him a nice punch in the kisser and a huge bar brawl ensues. A dude even goes through the window. It, this is great. We should get these in movies more often. Yeah, it's it's kind of hitting all of the notes that you'd want out of a big bar brawl. A guy goes through a window. Somebody's thrown behind the bar. The bar collapses. The The upper floor collapses the stage collapse everything this entire set is designed to be destroyed oh yeah all of these sets were made out of balsa wood yeah and uh just in case anyone needs to know a balsa wood very light i've I've handled it quite often but b uh you have to wash your hands after you handle it and in fact it breaking around you um it's slightly toxic yeah, it can Oh. Is it like held together with No, glue no, or just something? the wood itself because it powders so easily. Oh. If you breathe it in, it can really fuck up Oof. your lungs and stuff. Essentially, I'm told <laughs> Yeah, it's super delicate. You can just break it with yeah, your Yeah, I'm hands. told every time I'm on set, like if I handle balsa wood, it's like, "All right, cool. Go wash your hands now." It's like, "Yeah, I'm cool with that. Thank you." So, yeah, it's it's great. It's a classic. The place is getting fucked up. Lily finally manages to lay a punch into Jack. And in the scuffle, Maggie has somehow retrieved her camera, which promptly gets broken. Fate uses this as an opportunity to steal the gasoline. And somehow in the fight, Leslie takes maybe three punches and manages to kiss every single lady who crosses his path. <laughs> So, finally, the, 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 the bar brawl dies down enough where fate escapes with the gas and a stowaway. It's Maggie. Who is quickly discovered and then stranded in the middle of the desert, only to be picked up the next day by Leslie, whose car is now being to- towed by horses as there's no gasoline left and he has to tow his car to the next town. She proposes to send a carrier pigeon in order to order gas to arrive at the next town for them. And he goes, no. So that way they don't have to wait for it once they get there. Yeah, he says, no, I'll just wait for it. And she's like, well, you know, Professor Fate won't be ahead of you, I guess. And, you know, you can just take me to the next town. And he's starting to catch on of, (laughs) oh, you're going to figure out a next thing and a next thing and a next thing. And guess what? She absolutely does. Mm-hmm. Somehow, Leslie has made it out of that entire bar brawl, bar brawl absolutely spotless, as per usual. And when they get to the next town, Leslie fairly firmly orders his secondhand man, uh, Hezekiah. To Hezekiah Sturdy. Sturdy. <laughs> Hezekiah to uh, get rid of Maggie by putting her onto the train. Not like, you know, get, get rid of her, but more like a, 
really, we need to continue this race. She's being a nuisance. Please, I just want her out of the way. Well, not this emancipated woman, fellas. And she tricks him into getting on the train and she handcuffs him inside the train and he goes off and she comes back and she's all like, Oh, we had a lovely chat and he decided to go home. And Leslie goes, all right, let's do this. (laughs) And then in the next cut, they're already in Alaska. It it just goes Montana, Alaska. And we know it's Alaska because it's a snowstorm and their car is stuck. Yeah, all of the Alaska scenes look exactly like um, the Rankin-Bass Rudolph special. Like, literally, the backgrounds might as well be made Mm -hmm. out of tissue paper. So, now that the car is stuck, they have to huddle for warmth. And Leslie also comes up with the idea of, we should also drink alcohol, because it keeps you warm. It keeps the uh the radiator in the car warm why wouldn't it keep people warm and no 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 that's not how alcohol works in the human body (laughs) yeah but in this scene we also have a polar bear wandering around so we're not terribly (laughs) interested in how alcohol actually functions in the human body. yeah the the polar bear is important because right next to them literally right next to them is where Professor Fate and Max have their car break down as well. And then in a wacky series of events, somehow they end up with a polar bear in the car, which causes the two of them to tumble out of their car into uh, Leslie and Maggie's car as well. It's a bit of a wacky, ah, you, what are you doing here? And then finally they go, okay, we all need to survive. You don't want to murder anyone. Let's all huddle for warmth together for the night yeah this is when my fan fiction sense started tingling (laughs) the next day fate wakes up claiming he's feeling seasick and the others say no you're just hung over from all the champagne you drank but he's proven absolutely correct when he exits the car and falls into the ocean oh no the ice they parked on is now an iceberg intermission and I guess they're just going to have to sail their way to Alaska. Not Alaska. Further than that. They're sa- sailing across the ocean. Sorry. Yeah, Russia. Russia. Anyway, welcome back to the iceberg after the intermission. It's floated out to sea, and they all worry they're going to die. They're beset by the storm, and this water set's actually quite something. I, I was surprised by this. I was like, wow. Like, this, I, I know it's a set, but you guys are really going in on it. It looks mm-hmm. deep. It looks dangerous. Yeah, people are regularly Mm -hmm. falling off. But during this time, as they cross the ocean, a a relationship begins to blossom between Leslie and Maggie. And Professor Fate and Max both notice this and provide valuable insight. Now, thankfully, before they drown, starve, dehydrate, whatever... The iceberg somehow makes its way across the ocean to land. And somehow, Hezekiah has also made it there before them. How did we get there before them? (laughs) I don't know. Makes no sense to me. Wrong lever, Kronk. 
<laughs> now, they do say as they're coming into port that there's an American ship, which I guess is how he got there. <laughs> but yeah. yes, the timing <laughs> is suspicious. Also, what are the odds that they'd float into this exact port at this exact time? Yeah, the yeah. movie's not concerned. And thankfully, it's not concerned in the science way of the Meg's not concerned in science. This movie is just like, peh, we're here for the yeah. jokes. I've heard of science and I don't mm-hmm. care for it. So. Now, this is sort of the end of the first movie. Okay, what, what, how so do you mean? Oh, because now we get into the, the Polish stuff. The Prisoner of Zenda plot. And I would argue that this is its own movie on itself. There is a larger movie that is about the race. But once they reach um, Russia, we skip over them driving through Asia until they reach Carpania, which is a tiny European town. And everything that happens in Carpania... I'm sorry, it's not a town. It's a kingdom. And everything that happens in Carpania is its own movie. It could be excised entirely. Yeah, it's, this is really where my... Like, I was watching the film up until now. I was enjoying some of the jokes. But my interest in a plot finally kicked in here because up until now, <laughs> it had just... Oh, I'm so glad because, yeah, if you were not interested in this Carpania stuff, it lasts until the end of the yeah, movie, Yeah, yeah, because... Up until now, it's just been a series of vignettes, right? Like, here's them having a wacky adventure in Mm -hmm. X location, Wild West location, in a frozen location, yada, yada, yada. And then this one, they Mm -hmm. they get to it and go, all right, let's uh, just pump the brakes on the movie and let second movie walk in and do its thing now. Yeah, it feels like they had the idea for the Carpania stuff, and they just kept coming up with more and more jokes. And they were like, screw it, put them all in. (laughs) But Blake, the movie's already two hours long. I said, more jokes. (laughs) So this is a vague European city slash country in the same vein as, uh, oh, what's that fictional one that they kept using all the time in musicals? I can't remember. Oh, gee, I don't know. I always think of Genovia. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's in the same vein as Genovia. It's vaguely European and foreign enough where it's both Mm -hmm. recognizable and mysterious and different, right? But full, full of, of white, white people. Mm, Let's not absolutely. Get that <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not not a scary kind of foreign. A regular kind of foreign, I guess. Oh, yeah. God. The 60s. Yeah. Anyway. Leslie manages to make it first, and he's escorted to see the prince of said country. I believe it's called, it's called Potsdorf, the city that they're in. Uh, I think Potsdorf is maybe the city yeah, and Carpania yeah. is the And country, I looked yeah. up Potsdorf, actual city in Poland. That's why I said it was Polish. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so while he's living in the lap of luxury, Maggie has previously split up from Leslie and gone with Professor Fate. Professor Fate's keeping her around because he knows that Maggie is more trouble to Leslie than almost anything else. So... He's figuring at the right time, I'm going to just unleash her on him 
and I'll zip right by. No problem. No fuss, no muss. Professor Fate is actually a genius. He's better at rockets than Werner von Braun. He understands the psychology of all of this. He's just also incredibly dumb. And gay. And gay. I'm just I'm just opening here's a little ASMR. I'm just opening up my packet of edibles. I'm gonna have one so I can go sleep sleep later on. Yum 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 yum. Hold on, huh? Mmm, delicious. Mmm, yum yum yum. Ooh, it's a sour what cherry. What flavor? Like a cherry blaster. Mm-hmm. Ooh. I pay top dollar for these. I always tell the guy at the dispensary that, like, they taste so good, they should make it with every one edible you get. You should get a pack of, like, 20 of the exact same, just with <laughs> nothing in them. And he's like, yeah, they literally come from the same factory as, like, cherry blossoms and fuzzy mm, peaches. Yeah. Yeah. They're right there. Mine's just this kind of mixed bag of like all of the sour candies. They just happen to have pot in them. So, mm. yeah, they're they're pretty good. I like them. I like them a lot. Anyway, Potsdorf. There's a big fancy ball, and the crown prince is ushered in, and what? What are the odds? The crown prince of Carpathia, Carpania, whatever it is. Anyway, he looks exactly like Professor Fate. What? What a coincidence. He's also a massive lush. If you thought Jack Lemon was doing capital A, capital L a lot as Professor Fate, you are not prepared for Oh Prince yeah, <laughs> it's how, how, how often during a sentence can I add in an incredible laugh of a <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, it's like, it's, it doesn't sound like Mozart's laugh in Amadeus, but it's the same sort of uh, feeling. Oh yeah, and he is drunk. And fey as fuck. Like, Professor Fate yeah. is gay, but the evil pushes over the gay, like, like easily and says, no, 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 we're just evil. Prince Frederick, or Froderick, or however you want to pronounce it, he, he's a real gay, guys. He's walking around super limp-wristed constantly. Yeah, those those wrists have never been <laughs> stiff in their entire life. Oh, it's it's lovely. And we get this montage of Leslie waltzing with various courtiers because, of course, all the women want to be with him. And, of course, he's in resplendent whites for this ball. Yeah. Anyway, Leslie and the prince leave to talk about travel and the status of the race. And Leslie states he doesn't want to win easily. Another twinkle of the teeth this time but he notices off in the distance huh that's strange some of the prince's uh men his his right hand men his viziers perhaps the most evil palace job they're whispering to each other i wonder what their plot could possibly be hmm. <laughs> is this when uh, he's escorting prince friedrich to oh, his bedroom my god yeah <laughs> yes he asks, he asks if, 
Leslie's going to be tucking him in and the colonel or whatever who's escorting them is like, no, your highness, I will be tucking you in. He says, you're the worst tucker in in the kingdom. Oh, <sighs> I know men who, who, who use subtext that they're all cowards. <laughs> oh. Yeah, the prince also has four uh, very small little, what are those, bulldogs? Terriers? French terriers? Who want to lick his face at all times. And they're also all dead. They're very cute. (laughs) Jesus Christ, I can't help it. I think it's a personal flaw. Okay, every time I see... Is she dead? What? Am I am I learning about no. Denise? But, oh. but her dad was horrible. And I can't see Denise Crosby without thinking how horrible her dad was. I to was her. thinking Denise Richards. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, Bing Crosby, America's dad. What? Hit his kids. Sorry, hold Bring on a second. Lot. Bing Crosby is Denise Crosby's dad? Yeah. What? Wait till TikTok hears about this. Denise Crosby, another nepotism. Tasha Yar's father is Space Bing Crosby? Yes. Wow. I'm genuinely like wilded out by this fact. That's incredible. I never put the two together because I'm, I'm not a person who walks around going, those two, except for with the Afflecks. No, wait, not the Afflecks, the Pitts. I thought Michael Pitt and Brad Pitt were brothers. They're not. You know, I can sort of. But anyway, see that. anyway, that's that's great. Good for her. Good for her. No, no, it isn't. No, no, it isn't. No, no, I, I was I was thinking more so like good for her. She didn't she clearly didn't ride on the Crosby coattails. She set out, did ah. her own thing, which was I'm gonna do a Star Trek and then die and then come back. Yep. Hmm. Anyway. The prince is undressed and laid into bed, and then he's secreted away. Oh no. His men have betrayed him. Thankfully, Hezekiah sneaks aboard the carriage to find out what the fuck's happening. And they go to a prison where Fate, Max, and Maggie are being held. Now, either you've never seen any pop culture from the last 50 years, or (laughs) you're totally anticipating, oh, they're going to do the old switcheroo. Have Fate pretend to be the prince and then get him crowned as the king the next day and then he'll abdicate and leave all the power to the bad guys. If if you didn't see this coming 15 minutes earlier, welcome to the rest of the film, I guess. My one disappointment is that the technology wasn't For a split screen! Where they could do what they do in... They couldn't do what they do in every, like, dual casting now, where they have the actors stare at each other and go, I don't think he looks I that was waiting like for me. that moment, too. I was like, oh, we're totally gonna... Even if, mm-hmm. like, one's head is slightly obscured or we see one from the back of the head, they don't even try that. They're just like, mm-hmm. nope, these two will never be in the same shot together, let alone the same room together. 
Yeah, there's never any need in this plot for them to mm-hmm. be in the same place. So, Max is able to escape and sneak onto the carriage on its way back to the castle. Leslie is a... Yeah, Max is super competent when he isn't... Yeah, when he isn't in the throes of love. (laughs) (laughs) Leslie is arrested for spying, and that's quotation marks, and he's taken to the prison. And there's this whole lot of back and forth where one person goes to the prison and somebody comes from the prison back to the castle and somebody goes from the castle to the prison. Anyway, point is... Max breaks Leslie out and they have to steal Leslie's own car. Maggie and Hezekiah are about to be tortured for some reason. It's never quite stated why they're getting tortured, but they're getting tortured. No. Also, you need to keep in mind Natalie Wood is in her underwear throughout this entire part of the movie. Because when they yeah, but it it is that 1900s type of underwear, so it's not like a bra and panties. It's you know, still got a little bit of a strap part to it. And, you know, it's a bustier kind of thing happening as well. I I mean, yeah, like, technically, like, she's also wearing stockings, but she's wearing them with garters. I wouldn't no, say no, it No, no, it certainly doesn't de-sex it, but it's not like, look at all of Natalie Wood's skin. It's like, okay, so you can see her... Oh, oh, I right. disagree. Again. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm not looking at it the same way you are sometimes. And that's okay. Yeah. She is a gorgeous lady. So finally, mm-hmm. we arrive at a scene that I honestly didn't think would ever come in this film. Shirtless Tony Curtis. It's weird what shirtless men in the movies look Well, considering their pants go halfway up their rib cages. <laughs> yeah, but I'm watching it. I'm like, they've been telling us this whole movie that Tony Curtis is the sexiest man alive. And I'm like, her? Is he? I keep, you know. It's not to say I don't appreciate different bodies. I just find it interesting what Hollywood yeah, holds he, up at certain times. He's, as the he's handsome. He's good looking. He's just like yeah, a dude, yeah. you know? and it's it's very clear for most of this movie, he is fighting super hard to keep this very nondescript American voice going on, as opposed to, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm I'm fairly certain Tony Curtis had a very thick New York accent. Yeah, actually, I think mm-hmm. you're right. He did. Anyway, Tony Curtis solid snakes his way into the castle. <laughs> Might as well have been hitting, hiding underneath a cardboard box and uh, either murders or knocks out all of the guards on his way through with one punch each, right? Doesn't take much because he's Tony fucking Curtis. Mm-hmm. Manages yeah. to open the portcullis for Max to drive the car in. Now... Leslie sword fights the Baron and it's all very civil. It's a lovely set. They they're fencing because, you know, we'd set up previously. Ah, yes, he's a fencer. He knows how to fence. We get the requisite, um, adventures of Robin Hood. Oh, shadow great. Shot. Always love a shot like that. Fun to watch. And then the boys are, I don't know. I like it, but every time I see it, I'm like, 
we get it, guys. But also, I would be disappointed yeah, if you didn't. Yeah, and I think my disappointment in this scene is there's so much of this set, and it feels like it's barely used. Right? Mm. Like, they do move around the pillars. They go back and forth. They switch out fencing foils for sabers at one point, And so now they're actually cutting each other. Not that that matters. The blood is very little. It's just like a big red slash, and there it is. But mm. I was expecting, like, haha, we're really going up these stairs, and oh, oh, I found more weapons, and trading out, because there's a lot of weapons on the walls of this set. And they just go, sabers is good enough. Yeah, I also feel like if you're going to do the, look at us, we're making an homage to Errol Flynn, you have to live mm -hmm. up to that legacy. Anyway. There's very few movies that actually do that in terms of sword fights. Point being, these two sword fight, Leslie bests the Baron, the Baron goes, haha, now for my daring escape, thankfully, a guy I know has a boat just below this, and he dives out of the window into the boat, literally through the boat, the boat sinks. I don't understand what his plan was. <laughs> yeah, because he's jumping from like I four don't, stories up. I <laughs> don't understand what joke. his plan was. I don't know how they did this without killing the stuntman. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's great. Anyway, the coronations the next day. Fate is pretending to be the prince, and Leslie and his crew come racing in to stop it in time. Bad message. Down with monarchs, guys. <laughs> I thought we'd talked about this before. Maybe <laughs> the new guy is better suited than this lush prince who was going to drink the kingdom into oblivion. Who knows? But somehow, Max has snuck himself under Fate's cloak and convinces him, we gotta get out. We, let, let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. And they walk out after the crown has been placed on Fate's head. And this is where the movie really does something fun. It finds a gear that it has had, I guess, in reserve for the entire this is, run This is so finally far. the movie flipping up the head on the gear shaft, and there's a little red button there. And Leslie turns <laughs> to Maggie and says, push the button. And she goes, I don't want to push the button. And he goes, no, no, you got to push the button. And she pushes the button. And all of the characters end up inside this royal bakery which becomes a giant pie fight. Yeah, it starts by accident. Like, Fate runs in and falls off the stairs, and he crashes into this giant cake meant for the coronation. And all of these, you know, it's all of these grievances that have been building up for the entire movie. All they can think to do is throw a pie at each other, and then it becomes massive like i can't i can't tell you guys how big this pie fight is it took five no days way. To five days because yes. i would have thought like this would be the most fun day on set of just here you go guys we bought a fuck ton of pies just chuck them and it didn't even I hope to God those well, were not they would real be pies. mostly cream right with some coloring in it and cream is easy to mm -hmm. throw at people without doing damage but um i understand that in most cases it's actually like um shaving cream because shaving cream doesn't curdle or get sticky like sugar and cream do um, 
but I no, don't know with this one. <laughs> this is a there's really a big There's a lot pie fight. of stuff going into people's like eyes and mouth and stuff. And I would think to myself, like, I I would not want shaving cream shoved into my mouth. I'd rather be slightly sticky and just have to shower afterwards. But then again, who knows? Maybe they who who knows? Who knows, right? It's wonderful and it's amazing it's one of those film food fights that you're just like i would love to be there for this i know right it's like the kid and, dream like we're talking water slide in yeah, your house and kind of it looks dream. like everybody is genuinely having a good time doing it as well but you gotta, you gotta give the one thing about Leslie. So Leslie has been walking through this pie fight completely unscathed. <laughs> Again, pristine whites from head to toe. Gorgeous, gorgeous Leslie. And the one person who finally gets a shot in on him is Maggie. It's... So great because you see him in wide shots walking as pies whiz by him. And there had to have been takes where they accidentally hit him and they're like, fuck, we got to go clean up Tony Curtis, that sort of thing. But you're watching them whiz by him and it's like, <laughs> it's the closest you're going to get to no bullet time. <laughs> Tony Curtis being surrounded by pies it's, and none it's hit him. Tony Curtis's pie time. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank there's you. the title thank of the you. episode. I, that's that's you're the one who came up with the idea. You get the, you get the points for that one. Great. Okay, thank I'm going to type that in right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's great. It's a lot of fun. And um, you know, as as the the pie fight starts to die down, of course, the characters decide, well, that's enough of this silliness. Let's get in our cars and fuck off. <laughs> it's almost There's the end of the movie. literally 12 minutes left of the movie at this point. <laughs> so, Leslie and Maggie stop a little ways along the way. Who knows where? Somewhere in Europe. Doesn't matter. And they get cleaned up. And somehow, I guess, Leslie also has, like, cleaning products in his car. Because now they're back in pristine whites. And uh, Maggie has a little sing-along and I literally mean a sing-along because we get the words at the bottom of the screen and a bouncing ball telling us where we have to sing. <laughs> it's wild. I didn't expect this from the movie at all. But sure. Maggie <laughs> serenades Leslie as, he get, as they get clean from all the pie and he shaves. And it's a song about, like, you know, a, a, a tree and making a wish... Isn't it nice to be yeah, in the woods with my making love? Making a or wish whatever. on the tree, and hopefully the wish comes true, and blah 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 blah. And uh, he sits down with her, and he's he explains to her, "I finally come around to the idea that you are, in fact, an emancipated woman." And he kisses her, and she slaps him, good, <laughs> because he's because it's clear that he's only saying this shit to get into her pants. And she is not happy about that. Mm -hmm. This is this is just the um, the relationship from Down with Love, except Down with Love took you know 
40 or so years to sort of simmer on these yeah. ideas. And you know in Down With Love that those characters actually like each other. I'm not ever certain that Maggie and Leslie actually like each other or if this is just like sexual yeah, chemistry. It, it just feels at this point like, oh, guys, come on. We know you two are going to get together by the end of the movie. You got to give us something more than mm-hmm. this. But doesn't matter. Uh, Leslie passes Fate on the road, who is changing a tire, and Leslie and Maggie continue to fight, and that also slows them down, which allows Fate to catch back up, and then it becomes this neck-and-neck race through Paris. They use the final ten minutes of this movie to air their shit out. And they talk about sex. <laughs> the finish line is right under the Eiffel Tower. And when I say the finish line is right under the Eiffel Tower, it's not like, aha, here we are, finish line, Eiffel Tower. No, no. It's the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, th- th- this isn't a set. This isn't a, a map painting. They're legitimately shooting it under the Eiffel Tower. And Leslie is trying to explain, I love you. Don't you understand that? I would do anything for you. And she's like, huh, I, I doubt that. And he says, oh, fucking fine. And he slams on the brake right before the finish line. And he turns to her and he's like, yeah, I'll do this. I'll, I'll, I won't, I won't move. In fact, you know what? They kiss, which allows Professor Fate to zip right by them through the finish line and he's won he's won hooray amazing and he's pointing at uh, leslie and going haha you lost you lost and leslie says to him only the race and fate is so enraged by this because he didn't win properly <laughs> leslie has let him win I would take the win at this point. <laughs> I just fuck fuck yeah. this. <laughs> I survived crossing the Bering yeah, Strait. Yeah. I'm taking the we win. We survived going across Siberia. Going to chalk this up, please. So Leslie and Fate decide to schedule another race in order to get home. Right after Leslie and Maggie apparently got married. Yeah, as as you yeah. want to do. And the film ends like the middle scene of the G.I. Joe movie with Dr. Fate blowing up the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> quite quite possibly murdering <laughs> all kinds of people in the process. I'll get you next time, the Gadget. End. The end. So, Sarah, before we get to the big question... What do you think about this movie now having rewatched it as an adult? It's weird because I I feel like you would have noticed the pacing more as a kid, but I really feel like this would have been two amazing tight 80-minute movies. Or, you know, like a mini series where the Carpania stuff was a special two-parter or something mm. like that. It it is long 
However, this shit holds up. I think this movie is really, really funny. I still find it enjoyable when I watch it. How how did you feel coming to it for the first, first time? First time watch, zero knowledge going in. Some of the jokes worked for me, but I, I do have to say I had to split this up into two nights. Like, I just got to a point of like, okay, I can't take any more of this because it's very... <laughs> silly and the fact the fact that yes. it's held together by <laughs> a shoestring of a plot and then jokes there's not yeah you have to care for the jokes the characters are not getting you through this the plot yeah, is not getting you like, through it I have no idea what Leslie's motivation for doing this other than I'm a stuntman daredevil person Right, we have more of an idea with Maggie. Right, it's the suffragette movement, and she wants to be an emancipated woman. She wants to, you know, do things that were denied to her and her kind from before. And now here she is on top of the world, reporting, doing anything a man can do, that kind of thing. And that's great, but that's it. And so I was really at a loss for it. I was like, I have no idea why any of these people are doing any of this stuff beyond the plot needs it to happen so that the jokes can happen so i wouldn't necessarily call this a recommend i think there's a very specific type of person that i would recommend this to Right? If you have a fondness for this era of comedy and this era of film, I think this movie is going to be an absolute gas. You're going to love it head to toe if you've never seen it before. Right? If you like movies like Dr. Doolittle or uh, I'm trying to think of other things from around that time that have a very similar vibe to this. But I think... Doc- Chitty Chitty That's Bang it. Bang's uh, fantasy Chitty Chitty sequence. Bang Bang and Dr. Doolittle. Those are two movies that have a very similar vibe to this in that they're more a series of vignettes being tied together by an idea than they are a plot, mm-hmm. a story to be told, right? And that's not to knock it. I love that you love it. Uh, but I think... If I had had the childhood nostalgia that you did, I think I would have come to this better. But the big question is, Sam, do you think is this camp? I think Jack Lemon is camp. <laughs> I think I think he is carrying yes. so much camp with him. He he's chewed all the scenery in two different roles. And he's brought Peter Falk along for the ride with him. And so Peter Falk could get some, like, rub-off camp on him. Uh, But I don't think Leslie or Maggie are terribly camp. I think they're more silly than camp. I think all the camp rests on Jack Lemmon himself. How about you? Mm -hmm. I would tend to agree. I Now, maybe this is just my fondness for the movie speaking for it um i would tend to call this entire movie camp but i completely agree that the weight of it rests on jack lemon this is a blake edwards movie at this point we know what to expect when we go into a blake edwards movie and this movie 
delivers. So if you want that kind of silliness, they're going to give it to you. For sure. So thank you for joining us today on our exploration of The Great Race. Please subscribe on your podcaster of choice. Leave a star rating and review where you can, because it always helps us to find new people who may not know what their yes. favorite is. Yes, and next week, well, for the first time, considering last year we kind of whoopsie-daisy with it, uh, we are going to... Daenerys kind of forgot about the Iron <laughs> Fleet. What can I say? Next week, we are going to be getting our Halloween coverage. Woo! Spooky it's season. Spooky season. And what a better way to kick it off with a 1970s prog rock album <laughs> based on the War of the Worlds. <laughs> it's called The War of the Worlds. Now, I've only heard clips of this before, but you I are a big fan of this. I was raised on this album. Like, I remember my granddad putting this on, and it scared the bejeebers out of me as a kid. I, it's a War of the Worlds audio-only experience. That's what it's yeah, supposed to do. Yeah, it, it is H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, as told through the medium of prog rock. <laughs> Which is <laughs> the wildest thing but uh, I will tell you wilder things when we get to it next week and next episode. I'm excited for this. I've only I've only heard part of it, and I have listened to I've listened to the Orson Welles War of the Worlds, which I won't go into because everybody knows like like the the thumbnail version of it, a lot of it, mm-hmm. which is not real. Um, but. I think War of the Worlds is so suited for this kind of storytelling. I'm very excited yeah, to get and into it. Just as a heads up to the audience, there are two different versions that I know of. There's the original one from the 1970s, and there was a more modern version that was recorded, I think, in 2013, which used uh, one Liam Neeson as the narrator slash main character for the, uh, for the album. So... Pick whichever one you prefer. Uh, I'm a big fan of both. But, uh, yeah, with one, you do get more of an orchestral theater experience with Liam Neeson. And the other one, you get that real kind of like, oh, yeah, this was made in the 1970s kind of experience to it. What should campers search for if they're looking to listen to this? I'm going to pull it up on my Spotify right now. So I think Spotify does not sponsor this project. So the original one is Jeff Wayne's musical version. Uh, this is the title. Jeff Wayne's musical version of The War of the Worlds. It's also got Richard Burton. It's, it's also go. got Simple Richard ads. Burton in it. Yeah. Oh, is he the narrator? So do with that as you will. Anyway, you, our audience, our campers, can continue the discussion on our Twitter and our Instagram. I am at Reese Indigo, all one word, R-H-Y-S, spelled the Welsh way. And I am at Sour Citrus Lady. You can follow the pod on at Is It Camp Pod. Until next week, wait an hour before swimming, watch out for snakes, and stay camp.
Bye. I'll get you, Leslie. <laughs>